2 Kings chapter 7. Heroic lepers, that's the title of this evening's consideration. Now, remember where we are from last session. There was a severe famine in Samaria. Cannibalism had made its ghoulish appearance. In chapter 6, we, in verse 31, we read about the anger of the king towards the prophet of God, blaming God for the famine, never mind their idolatry. And at the 33rd verse of chapter 6, it says, And while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down to him, And then the king said, surely this calamity is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? And so evidently, though it's not said, the prophet Elisha had mentioned that this was going to end soon. And the king ran out of patience. And so he's pretty angry at the whole thing. And so he barks at the the prophet. How much long? I've I've waited long enough. Like he could do anything about it anyway. I mean, it was a waste of energy. Getting angry at God wasn't going to stop the famine. So severe was the famine that when the food finally came available, starvation ignited a stampede, and we'll get to that at the end. Included amongst the starving people in this city and the vicinity of the city were these four lepers that we're going to get to in a little bit. We wince at the word leprosy, and rightfully so. We don't wince at the word hero. We delight in that word. These lepers are going to be heroes because they saved the city. A city that forbade them from entering. They could not go into the city being lepers according to Jewish law. And that was one of the things that would have been upheld in spite of their idolatry. The conscience of these outcast men, these four lepers will make all the difference. Conscience made them heroes, and conscience is a big deal. That inner voice that is connected to God. It's not always. There are people that are atheists. They have some, some of them, have some sense of conscience because they, they know that uh, they would not want to be victimized by certain behaviors themselves, and so they, they feel some compassion towards others. But humans without conscience are like beasts create a lot of problems. Paul, speaking about the end times, said something, and when he talks about the end times, these characteristics of people, he's not saying these things don't exist now, but they will be uh, present when the end comes. He's not saying that. He's saying these things exist now, but when the end comes, the great tribulation, they're going to be really bad. They're going to be exaggerated. So he writes, speaking lies in hypocrisy about those who have their, uh, in the end times, and even today, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. We think about those without a conscience, such as that Chairman Mao, that vile man of China. Because of Mao, you had one of the greatest famines, man-made famines in human history. It's estimated somewhere between 10 to 30 million of his own people will starve to death because of his uh, introduction of communism, his plan, 
his vision for kind and care about his people. No conscience was there. Stalin, Stalin probably the, the greatest mass murderer of them all, starved the people in the Ukraine, taking the food away from them, taking the farms away from them. It's estimated over 8, 10 million people died from man-made famine. Stalin was punishing them for complaining. No conscience there. Then you have the crybaby cancel culture. They have no conscience either. They don't care what they do to others. They just care about their agenda. They have poorly thought out agendas at that. Defund the police. Let's defund the criminals. That doesn't make any sense to defund law enforcement. For example, that's just one of their many problems. That cancel culture that wants to force others to celebrate their perversity and their stupidity or pay because they have no conscience. And they target the children because they have no conscience. There's nothing in their head that says, don't do this. This is wrong. To them, what is wrong is not getting their will. Then there's that BLM, the Black Lives Matters group. Their insane agenda. You have to have no conscience. And the corruption is now coming, is drizzling out of how much corruption is at the top, the money that's being taken by their leaders. And, of course, there's always the murder of the unborn. I don't, I'm not talking under those circumstances where his health, is uh, life and death is at risk. I mean those who just opt out of having the child. And where is the conscience there? So conscience is a big deal. And that's what we're talking about in this chapter. Because if were it not for conscience, these four lepers would have let the city die. It was, they saved the city single-handedly in that sense. Conscience, memory, and reason. God's three hounds that bark at the soul to say that is wrong. In this seventh chapter, the word gate appears eight times. And I think it's significant because if the conscience, if the gate of the mind is closed, if the gate of decency is closed, then nothing from God can get in. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for I say to you, I say to you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Then John, chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, And Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go out and in and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Well, the thief doesn't have a conscience towards you. He doesn't care about you. He wants, the thief, he or she wants what they want from you. And conscience, conscience can be compared to a window that lets light in. God's truth, that is. Metaphorically, I'm speaking. But if you, we persist in resisting God's truth, the window gets dirty and dirtier until finally none of the light from God can get through. Potentially defiling the conscience. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Nothing from God is pure. They may uh, create their own standards of purity, but that doesn't fly with God. In fact, that's the problem. When man creates his own standards of purity, he's creating his own religion. And he's blocking out the truth, the truth of God. Well, let's, with that introduction on the conscience, maybe we will be more conscious of uh, what comes out of the lives of these four men who are outcasts. Verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, Tomorrow about this time a seth of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seths of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Well, the prophet is making a prophecy, a prediction of the future. He is saying that there's going to be an instant economic recovery. The food will flow again. And it will cancel their desperate need. It will also cancel out the cost of the price of a donkey's head for food, which was an unclean animal, and the dove dung likely again for fuel that we read about in chapter 6, it will cancel all that out. The gate, the gate of the city, was where the government affairs were conducted. And in most of the cities, there were markets and vendors set up within a plaza or outside the wall of the gate. This was common in the ancient world. And uh, this is, um, well, well, let's go to verse 2. So an officer whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if Yahweh would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, now the prophet is answering him, You shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. He is evidently a high-ranking assistant to the king. Why, why didn't he just keep quiet? Why didn't he just let the prophet say, Tomorrow this famine is going to, going to be gone? Because the devil is ever ready to sow seeds of doubt. When he has a lie, he can't wait to tell it. But he has to use people to do it. And this is one of the problems with gossip. This is one of the problems with talking too much. That doesn't pertain to pastors in the pulpit, talking too much. Anyway, this phrase here, would make windows in heaven, refers to rainfall. We get that from Genesis 7 and 8. God opened up the windows of heaven and the rains came. So his objection is that even if God sent heavy rains today, there'd be no grain tomorrow. How do you reverse a famine overnight? That's, that's his point. And it is loaded with unbelief. And, and it, is, it is not, uh, you know, an earnest unbelief. Like, I, I don't know how that's going to happen. And Nicodemus was earnest. You know, if, how can a man be born again? He's, he's, he's conversing with the Lord. He's not being obnoxious as some people can be when they object. His objection would have been valid had it not been directed at Elisha, a man of his stature, of his, his accomplishments with Yahweh. You, you, you don't question his prophecies. We would think people were ready to believe whatever Elisha said to him because of the things that they had witnessed him do. But that is not how it works in Christ. Faced the same thing. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. And those signs that Jesus did, too numerable to list, they included 
his teaching and his behavior. Here in verse 3 at the bottom it says, And he said, the prophet, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This is his second prophecy. The first one is tomorrow there's going to be food. The second is you're not going to eat it. The price of hostile unbelief. There is a price. Sometimes it's paid the next day, instantly, or uh, at the end of life. But it is a debt. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Well, contrary to what uh, many doctrines hold, that, oh, you can't depart from God once you have come to him. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Unbelief clogs the flow of blessings. It's just that simple. And we who believe in Christ receive him. We fight. We resist unbelief. Verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? So the scene now shifts to outside the city, but still within the vicinity of the city. And that's why it says at the entrance of the gate. They're, They're not able to come in. These four lepers, they pretty much lived in isolation because of their diseased skin. They had the social distancing before, you know, it became such an issue for us here in the last two years. Nobody had told them about Elijah's promise for food. This is an independent scene. And lepers, they live isolated from the city according to the law. Numbers 5 and Numbers Chapter 12, other places too, but those are two places that say that they can't come into the city. These four men banded together by reason of their shared misery. You know, misery loves comfort. And we get comfort from companionship. Being with somebody does not qualify as companionship. You can just be saddled with someone. uh, You know, being in jail because you're with a lot of people, for example, doesn't mean they're your companions. Companionship is friendship. Anyway, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? It's a rational response to a desperate situation. What do we have to lose? It's proactive. Let's do something. And you you have to like these men uh, for, for how they go about this venture of faith and hope. It's with reason and it's with risk. And they've calculated all of this. Verse 4 If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. Well, we go into the city where they're not welcomed. There's nothing there. So that won't work. The only hope is to go to the enemy for food. They're just trying to survive. And uh, they've factored in this venture forward with reason and hope. They've factored in. They're they're totally aware of the the risk. The the Syrians may kill us. If pitiful lepers can reason, why do so many Christians seem to pass, routinely pass, or opt out of reasoning? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the emotions are a big part of, of the problem in humanity. The people letting their feelings do their thinking is just almost always a problem. Verse 5, 
And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. <laughs> well, at twilight, that would cover their exit. It would, ob- ob- it would obscure their departure from the vicinity of the city. I mean, someone may have spotted them going towards the Syrian army and said, hey, these guys are spies. They're going to tell the Syrians how bad conditions are, whether, you know, the best place to attack. And they, they could have been, you know, again, mistaken for spies in the twilight, uh, you know, the obscuring their, their departure. You know, at twilight, that's the worst time to be on a bicycle on the road because cars, you know, it's harder to see things in, at twilight. Moving in the shadows. So here, they have embarked on a heroic journey and know it not. They have no idea how God is going to use them. Again, just trying to survive. Well, I've, that's, that's true of other people too. There are people just trying to survive and then God uses them. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, well, <laughs> when they came to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, there's no century. And... Uh, to their surprise, no one was there. No sentry on the post. Fortunately for them, Archie and Jughead were the sentries that particular day or, or night. Sentries are not posted so they can flee at the sound of the enemy. They're posted to sound the alarm and begin the resistance. Here we have complete opposite. We have the sentries there. They hear something and they spread panic throughout the camp. Of course, God is in this. So to their surprise, no one was there. It's almost comical. Here they are ready for death. To get there mentally it takes a lot of energy. The resolve. Okay, we're just going to die if they don't give us food. And uh, there's no one there. The look on their face is like, huh? It appears that the food was still just served. Because, they, well, let's just read it. Verse 6. For Yahweh had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of the horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Maybe, maybe God used those chariots of fire that he let Elijah's servants see. Maybe he used them to make some noise, divinely magnify, uh, you know, the spirit realm, noise from the spirit realm, or maybe he magnified the noise of the lepers making their way. It was miraculous, so it's not, not going to figure it out. But they have this terrified reaction. And they just, the lepers, again, are oblivious to this. They don't know what's going on. Clearly, at some point, the Syrian side of the story works its way back to Israel. And that, which is common. I mean, uh, you know, people talk and tell the story. The fate of the commanders who fled and then get to Syria and learn that the Hittites and the the Egyptians were not hired, what was their fate? They were probably executed. Well, coming back to this, so they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians. And God, confu- God will confuse his enemies, and the Bible teaches that very clearly in Genesis, in Kings, in Isaiah, in Samuel, uh, Zechariah, in the New Testament, in Thessalonians. Very clearly, God will confuse the enemy. 
But the Syrians felt surrounded. The Hittites are from the north. The Egyptians are from the south, and that's what they're saying. They, they've hired the Egyptians and the Hittites, and we're, we're boxed in. And they've probably fled to the east to get to the Jordan, and there a highway led up towards Damascus or Syria, and that would have been their escape route. In verse 7, therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And so they were in complete panic. It's at the same time, at twilight, they fled at, as the lepers, which is why I'm saying maybe God amplified the footsteps and the clinking around of the, the lepers. You know, maybe they had clay pots for their water, you know, like canteens with them, uh, and just whatever. But it happens before it's fully dark. It's interesting also that what the Jews lost to the famine, they're regaining the horses and the donkeys, for example. The Lord defeated the Moabites in chapter 3 when the three kings went out to the desert and Elisha brought water. Well, miraculously gave them water in the desert and the, the Moabite kings saw the reflection, saw the water, thought it was blood and then they carelessly, recklessly went down to take the spoil and the Jews and the, um, uh, the, the, both the kingdoms and the Edomites were lying in ambush, and they sprung out, and they defeated the Moabites there. And so the Lord defeated the Moabites by a miracle of sight, perception, and fearlessness. They weren't afraid. Not fearlessness, but I'm really not using that word as proper as I want, but it's going to fit in with what I'm going to say, so I'm going to use it this way. It was not fearlessness in the sense that they were courageous, it was in the way I'm using it, is they were unafraid because they thought by perception that the enemy had wiped itself out. Here, the Lord is defeating the Syrians by a miracle of sound, not sight, and perception and fear. So that's kind of an interesting formula that God has, uh, you know, used in two different situations some of the same ingredients and some uh, different. Verse 8, And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank and carried from it the silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some of from there also and went and hid it. Super jackpot. These guys are just there eating. You can see them, you know, with a, I don't know, a drumstick in one hand and robes in the other. And they're just, this is like incredible. But for this leprosy, life would be great. Just in time for dinner. What are the odds? This is, this is almost comical. But still, they're not heroes yet. They're heroes to be as they gorge themselves and loot the enemy or the plunder. They pillage the camp. Their excitement levels must have been off the proverbial chart. Could you imagine them? I can't believe this, you know. I can't believe this, Ira. And me either. This is amazing. And this stat, you know, they're just hoarding everything as much as they can carry. You've got to hide this stuff, you know. They're going to sell it, I'm sure. Probably be the best-dressed lepers you've ever seen. Is that Syrian silk? Yes, it is. 
Well, they're shuttling back and forth from the Syrian camp to the hideout. And remember, this is an army of food. <laughs> or it's a food for an army. Therefore, it's food for a city. Uh, it, it's a perfect match. It's going to be more than enough to go around, a surplus of food. Verse 9, <clears throat> Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Conscience steps forward. They could have just been like, you know what? They won't let us into the city. I ain't giving them anything. Not a trace of that. I mean, it took, they had, you know, they, they couldn't think on an empty stomach. Now that they're full, they're, they're, their faculties are returning. And so here, these men, in spite of their awful disease, their outcast status, their suffering in life, they still fear and revere God. They still, I mean, that's a hard place to be when you think maybe you've been dealt a dirty hand in life, and yet you still, in purity, love the Lord. Where they say, if we wait here in verse 9 until morning, morning light, some punishment may come upon us. That is telling us the conviction is very strong. These are decent men. Perhaps the fact that they were smitten with leprosy for whatever, just to, 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 again, the, the deal of life they got may have heightened their sensitivity to being punished. You know, like, we've already got leprosy and we feel guilty about this. Let's not make things worse. Maybe some of that was going in this. But God graciously allowed them to feast and pillage before opening their eyes. The grace of God is twofold here. It's graciously letting these men satisfy themselves, amass some first choice on the wealth, because they couldn't take it all. And then, graciously... Opening their eyes, the fear of God moved them to do what was right, not the terror of God. His enemies faced that. This is a reverence. There is a terror element to it that can be activated amongst his people also. Um, I think Peter was a little terrified of Christ when there at the Galilee he said, Depart from me, for I am a wicked man, a sinful man. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the, the king's household. So the decision, this decision, now they're heroes. And this decision saves the city because their conscience was alive, not seared with a hot iron. Conscience enough still. But they still had to act on it. It wasn't enough to say, this isn't right, that we're glutting and feeding ourselves like this, and people are in the city starving and there's cannibalism going on there. That's not enough. You have to take the step toward the city and get there, and this is what they do. You know, we can't keep the gospel to ourselves. Can you just like, you know, I'm saved. Tough luck for you. Well, then you probably wouldn't be saved. Verse 10, So they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied and tents intact. Verse 11, and the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So here this band of begging lepers who are 
again, brothers in the cause, they uh, were likely familiar to the guards. And the guards don't doubt them. Well, they, they may, but they, at least they take them seriously enough to pass the word up the chain of command. This was big news. Everybody had hoped for it. And so it reaches the king, verse 12. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Well, typical, likely, again, Jehoram, impetuous, impulsive, irritating, and just just ready to not believe. You know, I've said it several times, you know, God has led us to the wilderness to kill us, and just, you know, just always negative. And it's, it's actually dim-witted. Yeah, they've, they've, a whole army is hiding in the bushes. It just doesn't make any sense. You know how hard it is to hide an army? It's hard enough to hide a, a fire team. Uh, you just, uh, you know, don't sneeze. He's a negative numbskull. And I, I don't say that with disrespect. <laughs> just absent of respect. <laughs> he has no right to be so quick to doubt. He has no right to, he should have like, well, well let's look into this. And he's not going to be the one that takes the next step. Especially since Elisha the prophet's words not even a day old, had said God was going to provide food, the famine would end. His brand of skepticism has a paranoid taste to it. And we need to guard against that because that is a taste of poison. It's one thing to be cautious. It's another thing to have a paranoia that is unfounded. I mean, if you certain neighborhoods you go in, you have a heightened sense of security. Hopefully. But that doesn't mean you go to certain other neighborhoods and you just say, ah, everything's fine here, no problem. You still have to always be a little bit on guard wherever you go. Verse 13, And one of his servants answered and said, Please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may enter, uh, pardon me, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed, so let us send them and see. So here is a man close enough to the king, desperate enough and brave enough to speak up with reason and counter the king's paranoia. And essentially, he's saying, unless we do something, we're going to die like all the other dead things in the city. What can, what, what's the harm in verification of what these men have said? What do we have to lose? Verse 14, Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. Now the King James Version says they took two chariot horses, but that's not accurate. The Hebrew literally is two chariots of horses. Two chariots with horses. And this would account for him saying, let me take, you know, five men. And, uh, you know, he couldn't just take two horses and let the other three guys run behind. Or <laughs> Come on, keep up. Anyway, it's likely they took four horses and 
four to six men uh, to, to go with them. But they're taking chariots. The horses are pulling chariots, which I find puzzling. Because I, I would think the chariots would limit the mobility and the stealth and speed and just be better to just take a horse. But they didn't ask me. And uh, it turns out they didn't have to. Maybe you could answer why they took chariots instead of just going on horses. Anyhow, coming back to verse 5. I mean, the, the, all right, I'm not going to go into the military stuff because I know some of you like boring and others are like, no, no, go into it. So verse 15. And they went after them to the Jordan. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king after they ate. <laughs> I would think they would you know what, just a little snack on the way, okay? It's a, it's a little jerky, camel jerky. Anyway, uh, it's a little disgusting. That's what it is. From Samaria to the Jordan where the route that it says here, they went after them to the Jordan, which you cross the Jordan, there's a highway going up north or south, where there's a highway running along the east there. So about almost 30 miles or so. And so this is taking time. It's going to be morning by the time all of this ends up back in the city. But this retreat was not a retreat. This, is, this was an unorganized and shameful mass desertion from the battlefield. We saw something similar to this in the Gulf War, in that highway of death, where those uh, Iraqi troops had plundered, had molested. They were, they were criminals, and uh, they were also cooked. Before it was all over, the Allied forces just destroyed them. And the road was littered with uh, burned-out vehicles. And so anyway, this is a similar situation. There's a better way to withdraw. Professional troops don't withdraw this way. Uh, they, they handle bad news a lot better than this. And I, I want to take a moment to add, and I'll hopefully say this Sunday. This past Sunday, we had no music worship. And I think the congregation handled it like professional Christians. Uh, there was no complaining. There's no whining. You know, a lot of places, people are going to get their shots in. Uh, and it just was, a, what a blessing it is, little things like that. There's a way to handle things that go wrong, a wrong way and a right way. And that's true whether it's military or church or an individual. Anyway, uh, many Christians, uh, well, let me put it this way, in a positive way, well, I think, may we Christians not litter a retreat route with our armor by discarding it, as these men did. May we take up the armor of Christ and never discard it until we go to heaven. I see that lesson in this. As I read this, you know, the Bible is never, the Bible never says, there's no spiritual content here, just read the story. It's always something there spiritually. That's why we have this book. It's a spiritual document. It is a sword against spiritual evils that show up in the physical and material world. And as I read this, I don't want to do with my armor what these men were doing with their armor. 
so ter- and you meet you meet Christians like this. They you know they're talking. Oh, I love the Lord and singing in the church, and then pressure comes their way. And they just throw their armor away. And it's like, man, what happened? They just crumbled. Well, um, verse sixteen. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seth of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seths of barley for a shekel according to the word of Yahweh. Well, they didn't have to post this on the evening news. Once one person found out there's, there's food in them year hills, uh, it was just this mass exodus. Everybody, was, the word just spread. And it's a, it, it should be that way with good things too. Um, you know, once you tell people if it's good news, especially to share it, don't hide it, divide it. God rescued this city when it didn't deserve to be rescued. I wonder what happened to the cannibals. What happened to the two cannibal women? They didn't deserve to be rescued. Only God could have delivered this city from this siege. There was nobody else to come to their rescue. Now there was food enough to feed the city from an army. Uh, The standards of measurements are secondary. And suffice it to say... There were drastic changes in the price of flour. In fact, there was flour now. Verse 17, now the king had appointed the officer whose hand he leaned to to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So you now he's going back and telling them, well, this is what Elisha said. This is the officer from verse 2 that injected doubt into the prophecy. You know, if it should pour down rain, how are you going to have food tomorrow? So in a desperate rush for the food, because of the level of starvation, the city, they stampeded. And he was in the way. And uh, he died, as it says here. He should not have doubted the prophet. Had it, again, been just somebody else saying, maybe we'll have food tomorrow, and he mocked them for that, that would have been one thing. But this was an official prophecy from the man of God under a horrific conditions with starvation in the city. He says, just as the man of God said. So it is very sad, and it is sadder still that the world mocks Christianity, much because of fake Christians, Pseudo-Christians, they'll say, you know, they, they, they just hate Christianity because of what the fake Christians are, are doing and saying. And we, uh, we are the man of God. And in the end, it's going to be just as we said. You will stand before the great white throne of God as a sinner doomed forever. Or you will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. And be in heaven with him forever. It will be just as the children of God had spoken. Verse 8. And do you, do you believe that? Do you Ask yourselves. Do I believe the message that I. Okay so let's just say. A pastor goes into the pulpit. And he preaches a great sermon on trusting God. And loving God and persevering. Does he believe it? Or is he just saying well. I don't believe it so much anymore. But maybe you can do something with this. Uh, you know, he has to believe it himself. It has to be uh, something that he is consuming and taking in. He's communing with Christ on the truths of Christ because Christ is the truth. 
Verse 18, so it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two sets of barley for a shekel and a set of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Again, the standards of measurement don't matter. The point is everything is going to be cheap and plentiful. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And that's, he, of course, he's trampled. But I want to go back to the part about uh, they're selling the flour. Well, there are people that couldn't make it out there. Uh, the whole city can't make there was, you know. But so there were those that could bring back large quantities. And they set up markets, and they, they sold it at a discount. They wanted to move it, get the money. And I'm sure there was some element of compassion there also. So uh, that was that's what's going on in verse 18. And in verse 19, it is evident that it was mockery of, of the prophecy. And we've seen this before. The stern hand of the prophets, you know, smite me. No, I won't. And then, okay, a lion's going to get you for not doing what the prophet told you. Um, this does not mean that God caused the man's death. It does mean God did not stop the man's death or interfere with it. And uh, verse 20, so it happened to him, so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. And so the writer is just really driving this point home that this guy was trampled. We got it up in the earlier verse and then we're getting it several times in the end. It's better to doubt the doubts about God than to doubt God. That's something to think about. When you feel a doubt coming up from God's word, you Satan whispering in your ear, you see, the Bible's not trustworthy. Um, you know, you can just ask Satan, what do you call trustworthy? And that's the, actually the second question. The first question to Satan would be, who cares what you think? You have forfeited any right to judge. And there is no doubt about an evil entity, uh, an evil personality. I don't see, you know, you look at the people who they worship Satan. It's so stupid, is it not? Where did you even get the knowledge of Satan from the Bible? Then how is it that you take from the Bible that you believe in a Satan who is defeated in the Bible and side with him and expect this to go well with you? It is crazy the things people will believe in once they reject Jesus Christ. And sometimes you'll find people that, you know, they're, they're coming to Christ. They're almost there. Then they stop and turn and go believe in the dumbest stuff with no proof, no validity to it. It is very real, the spiritual war. It's not all about reason. That is part of it, but it is not enough. Ephesians 6.11, put on the entire armor of God. So you can't just say, well, I'm going light today. I'm going to leave the breastplate. I'll take the shield and the sword. That's not what God is saying. He says, look, you need to be ready for everything. There is no light armor with God. You need to be body armor total. And he continues, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I mean, he's clever. He, sh he knows people. He knows what sinners will and will not do. God does not side without doubts. That doesn't mean he slams us. He certainly doesn't side without doubts about his word. 
But he does hope to find us resisting the doubts when we face them. So when I come across an apparent discrepancy or a contradiction, I've learned, okay, I'm going to crack this nut. I am not going to side with the doubt because there's been too many victories for me to do otherwise. I've had too many of these experiences where, oh, oh, okay, and I find the answer. So, uh, you know, why would I not trust, why would I classify the trustworthy as untrustworthy simply because I encounter resistance? Well, I'm supposed to resist the resistance. Therefore, submit to God. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you so that he can regroup and attack you again and find you in full armor. This is a cycle. You're not going to get away from it in this life. There are no permanent victories in this life. There are repeated victories and they are worth it. And you don't have a choice. Well, you have a choice, but the alternatives are just repulsive. Perish then. Side with things that you know aren't true. Memorials are critical. If God has done something for you, try to never forget it. Because Satan wants you to forget it. And if you remember, if you remember, wait a minute. I remember God did this for me and it was no one but him. Why am I doubting him? Because things aren't turning out how I, how I, I like? Well, that's not grounds to doubt God. God's word always leaves us uneasy with disbelief. It needles us. It's supposed to. The apostate gets the, 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 the seared with a hot iron conscience and just shuts down. I'm done. God didn't turn out for me the way I wanted him to turn out. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to their lust because they did not want God. They wanted to box God out. He was too too many restrictions, too many rules. You mean I can't I can't smoke pot? We should put a sign outside over here. Keep off the grass. <laughs> I mean, what grass? All right, you for those of you who don't know where we are, then it's an inside joke. Here's another inside joke. <laughs> All right, back to this. I'm almost done. I see that we have time, so then I get to preach. <laughs> In the end, are not all believers heroic lepers? Aren't we all lepers before we come to Christ? We're unclean. We have, we have something wrong with us that is deeper than the skin that separates us from God and should separate us from each other. But because of Jesus, because of what he has done... We become heroic when we share the gospel, when we live the Christian life, when we build up each other instead of stripping each other down. All of us are heroic lepers or have the opportunity to be. But again, one of the critical things that made these men heroic was their ability to reason and to risk. They reasoned they had to do something and they were willing to take the risk because it was worth it and they accepted the consequences. Heroic lepers are used to preach the gospel to save, not cities, but souls. Because to God, it's about individuals. Individuals are worth more to God than cities. 
And in the great tribulation, whole cities will be destroyed. But there will be souls that will be saved from those cities. Well, let's pray. Our Father, again, as we are exposed to these truths from your word, may we beat the doubts as many times as we need to beat them. And we smack them down every single time because of resolve to trust in you. For you have made yourself real to us. And may we not take the foolish step of trying to pretend that what you have made real somehow has not happened. May we continue in the faith. May you, Lord, we ask, get us all home safely this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.